It's okay to cry about your circumstances, the devastation, destruction, and adversity sometimes. The important thing is to know that you are stronger than any pain that you must go through. Tap into that hidden strength and find what lies at the bottom of your heart and beat life back into you. Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. And those are the words of Donna J. Hopkins. And believe me, she knows what it's like to have life knock you down. An athlete, Donna won college scholarships in both basketball and track. She majored in radio and television communication, and after graduation moved to Washington, D.C. She battled breast cancer twice, but it was routine surgery that would lead to a serious condition and cause her to lose her left leg below the knee. But Donna is a fighter and a survivor, and she's come back stronger than ever. She tells her story in her new book, Getting to the Other Side of Victory, and we're thrilled to have her talk with us today. Donna, I'm so excited to have you here today telling us about your amazing story, so welcome. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here to share the story that I believe that's going to help a lot of people uh, in uh, reading my book, too. So let's start at the beginning. You were born in West Virginia, the eighth child of 10 children. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Uh, Yes. You know, I I constantly tell people that my mom uh, said that she only wanted one and ended up with 10 kids. And I used to tell her, wow, that's a long ways from one. Uh, but it, it was it was great uh, growing up in a big family, uh, different personalities, different people to do things with, uh, pretty tight-knit family. Uh, my dad was really strict. Uh, you know, he had a, I tell people that growing up in West Virginia, it was almost like uh, we had our own mini little band and uh, sports team. Um And, you know, my dad engaged us in a lot of things uh, coming up as far as we lived literally on a farm where we had livestock from hogs to to chickens, dogs, uh, had our own garden. So it wasn't too often that we had to visit the grocery store. Uh, And and we did a lot of things together as a family, you know, some travels uh, together. And my grandmother lived close by and a lot of uncles and aunts. So it was almost like uh, a mini little family living in that community together, which, um, you know, you learned a lot of things about just endurance and and the importance of family. Uh, And I think that that trickles on down throughout life, uh, you know, cultivating those important things to you. Uh, which is family and friends. And you learn going through things in life that reaching back to some of your childhood uh, situations, upbringing, uh, um, values, morals and values that um, later on in life, they become very important to you. Mm -hmm. So you earned college scholarships in both basketball and track. Uh, Where did your athletic gifts come from? You know what, uh, my, you know, my, my, one of my oldest brothers, uh, a few of them played sports, um, but none of them probably had the, the desire to really play it uh, on a higher level. Uh, my, one of my brothers was in track and field. 
one plate football, but I think I of all the the siblings that it burned heavy in my soul as far as just being an athlete. Uh, and that that's how I tell people that I think I came out my mom's womb running uh, and jumping and, and playing uh, all kind of various sports. But I, I think I, the, the driving force probably was because of all of my siblings, because um, we used to play flag football in our backyard. We used my dad put up a basketball hoop uh, on a shed in the back of our yards where we beat down the grass that became a dirt court. And, you know, I used to play with my brothers and people from the neighborhood sports. So earlier on, you know, I think as a child, we were always engaged in, you know, playground activities that it ended up just materializing into a passion for sports on my behalf. Um, I, I mean, I used to climb the tree, swing from the tree and do all those things. And my dad said, you you're nothing but a little tomboy, but, you know, a girl on the, out, the outside also. But um, I think that just the competitiveness, the, what what all goes into just uh, being an athlete and being on a sports team and, uh, you know, the even the practices and all that goes into making a winning team or just that participation. So I think it was just something that kind of like materialized into a love for sports down through the years of playing uh, that flag football uh, with my siblings and also the basketball. Mm -hmm. So you earned degrees in radio and television communication. Uh, Did you always plan for a career in the media? Most definitely. I tell someone that if I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player, that I was going to be in sports broadcasting in some ways. Uh, And it was almost something that I think um, I strive to be a part of. I I love every aspect of of, of being uh, surrounded by sports and the uh, covering sports and the stories behind, uh, you know, people who are involved in that so yes for sure uh i in even in college i ended up doing an internship at a radio station while i was at college and then also uh doing the basketball and football games i did the color competing at the play-by-play so i kind of like was making sure that i had my uh, feet entrenched into that and then when i got out of college you know immediately tried to get jobbed in that so like I said, if I wasn't going to play professional basketball, I was going to be in uh, sports broadcasting some way. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly sounded like you had a, a plan. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, Donna, how old were you when you were first diagnosed with breast cancer? Uh, 36. Okay. Uh, 36. Still, and, and, you know, I tell people not even at the age to, to get mammograms or you know no family history really uh that i knew of at the time my mom's sister had breast cancer and she comes from a family of 18 my dad from a family of about 10 so we got huge family Mm -hmm. on both sides and i only knew of one aunt that had breast cancer and that was on my mom's side at the time of my first diagnosis Hmm. okay and and what was the prognosis after that first diagnosis after you went through treatment um, they caught the cancer cancer early, uh, you know, sitting at work one one uh, afternoon, I found the lump myself, so I immediately went to get that checked on. 
So they found the cancer early and they only had to do radiation and do a lumpectomy mm-hmm. in removing the lump. So they said that no need to do chemo because they had caught it early. But later on, even just last year, I found out that it was aggressive breast cancer. And even though it was small, um, if I had known that it was aggressive breast cancer, and maybe I wasn't listening to all the details because, you know, you've got so many other things that's going on in your mind when they say that you've got cancer, yeah. that I must have missed that because had I known that it was, and, and my doctor said that it was no need to uh, get the breast removed because they caught it early and it, it didn't break outside the, the area it was contained contained and it wasn't in my lymph nodes so they said that there's no need to get the breast removed but had I heard that it was a aggressive breast cancer no matter what he said and and if I had done my research even more I would have got the breast removed the first time around. So what happened the second time you were diagnosed again and how many years later was that? Two years later, and I and you know the yeah two years later, and the funny thing is that second year, uh, well the year after the first diagnosis, I had all these twinges and these shooting pains, and I, and they said that it was probably just be, because of the radiation, but who knows? It was it could have been dormant and small cells just couldn't have been showing up on uh, you know at that time. So the second time around, through a mammogram, my yearly mammograms, and that's why I tell people it's important to constantly go get your checkups. Uh, so the mammogram found it in the same breast and was closer to the chest wall, and it hadn't broken out outside the chest wall, so it was still, you know, it was early detection. Uh, you know, I always tell people save save lives. So because um, I didn't have to get chemo again, but the breast had to be removed, but two years later, and, you know, first time around, I thought I was cancer-free, and to come back to have it, you know, two years later was kind of like a mind-blowing situation for me. Mm-hmm. So what what is your status with it now? I mean, I, I'm assuming you go for your yearly checkups. Yes, uh, cancer-free. Uh, 20-some Good. years later, cancer-free, and it's because I constantly go and do the, you know, I take care of my body. Not that I didn't before, but I'm really mindful of what I eat and, and making sure, and, and I'm an exerciser anyway, and making sure that I do all the things that I can myself, um, but but I'm cancer-free and everything is looking good. That's great. Uh, so, Donna, about 10 years later, you went into the hospital for what was uh, routine surgery for fibroids. And uh, there were, needless to say, some complications. Can you take us through that? Yes, I call that a medical uh, disaster. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, I, um, the fibroid tumors have been there over the years that they started off as the size of probably a dime. And over the years, it grew into the size of softballs. Mm. And it was causing chronic bleeding. So my uh, gynecologist thought it would be best to remove the the fibroid tumors, not only remove the fibroid tumors, but having a hysterectomy. And, you know, after thinking about it for a while, I decided not to have a hysterectomy because I wanted to keep the window open to still have kids, even though it was late in my life. Uh, And I probably, it would have been kind of like hard to probably have kids, but I still wanted to have the window open and nothing was wrong with my uterus. So I didn't want to go that route. Mm -hmm. So I opted out of getting the hysterectomy and just had the fibroid tumors removed. 
And um, when I went in to get them removed, the first surgery, and the funny thing is I walked to the hospital that day thinking that I was going to be in five days, and five days turned into two and a half months, six Mm. surgeries later, and losing and having the leg amputated. So the first surgery went well, and they thought everything was okay. Uh, A few days later, I thought they they thought I was uh, internally bleeding, so they went back in, and I wasn't. They couldn't find anything, and then a few days later, my upper intestines weren't working, so they had to go in for a third surgery. And we know that anytime you have to go in for multiple surgeries, you become susceptible to uh, infections, and so you're talking about six surgeries in probably I mean, well, three thir- surgeries within you know five six days, and um, then I ended up getting a clot in my foot, which ended up, uh, you know, going up. They had to, well, actually, they had to cut the leg open to relieve some of the pressure. And that clot went up into uh, my arm, and they were trying to work that out. And I literally stopped breathing while they were working that out because I kept telling the nurse, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And she said that, you know, she said, calm down. And so I literally was watching them. I stopped breathing for a few minutes and I literally watched them work on me. And they said they had to immediately stop. And then they told me afterwards, you got to learn. She had to learn how to breathe. No, I was trying to breathe. Um, So, you know, I ended up getting a staph infection that complicated, uh, you know, the the blood clot ended up having to be transferred to another hospital, a trauma hospital. And um, the staph infection probably added on to it with the, the blood clot. And the blood clot came from a medicine, uh, it was heparin, mm-hmm. which heparin is a blood thinner, which is supposed to prevent blood right, clots. It, right. ended up, it ended up causing the blood clot. And then on top of that, getting the staph infection, because you're talking about six surgeries uh, are being opened up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had all these water blisters, so I called it a... Uh, unforeseeable uh, medical disaster in 2010. And then, you know, they um, ended up almost having to amputate my two hands and my other foot. And by the time I got to the second hospital, you know, I was hanging on by a thread of life. And they uh, said that they had to immediately take me into surgery because, you know, it was three options that gangrene, the amputation or death. None mm-hmm. of them, none of those are good. No. My family and, and hearing those words, you know, my family looking like, oh, my gosh, a simple surgery. And I guess no surgery is simple. Turn into this. And they waited, you know, uh, a little bit before amputating the leg because they wanted it to do it below the knee mm-hmm. uh, versus up above the knee. And um they ended up, you know, in July of that year, late July of 2010, having gone through all of that and uh, having to amputate the leg. And my mom made that decision because I was too sick um, because they could have just amputated part of the foot. But they said uh, my mom's an active person as she is. Um, she wants the best quality of life because she wants to still be able to do all the things that she did before and, and having it above the knee would have been a little more challenging. Uh, so she made the decision to have the amputation done below the knee versus just part of the foot. And they said that, you know, they wanted to do the most where they don't have to go back in. And, you know, if gangrene ended up traveling up more, they would have to go in to do another surgery. So, 
That's 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 pretty much what happened in 2010. But I tell people, uh, no matter what happened, the fact that I'm still alive, seeing what I've uh, what I went through and hearing it from my family, it is a miracle that I am here today. You know, Donna, I can't imagine what that was like, especially for your mother going through this. Uh, it just must have been horrific. Pretty devastating because she was sick herself. Uh, I mean, she's you, you're talking about a mother that was going through some medical challenges of her own. And then she has to come from West Virginia and try to nurse her daughter back to health or just to save her life. And to see, uh, you know, her for see, to see a child go in for a surgery that was not supposed to be complicated, right, that right. you never saw this coming, uh, that when you were blindsided, everybody was blindsided by this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was de- devastating to see. And I always say that emotions were high because everybody was trying to do the right thing, make the right decisions. And so when 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 you have something that happens so unexpectedly. Uh, things are said, situations happen where families are all over the place because they're emotionally shocked to, to, to have to deal with something that never should have come about. So my mom was pretty, you know, devastated. But you know what? The strength that she has and, and watching that strength throughout my life, it kicked in again because even though she was sick, she was more concerned about me and me, them saving my life than what she was going through. And she was sick even coming to the hospital herself. But it's almost like um, she had such a covering over her that protected her through all of this. And just our faith in God and, you know, him seeing us through all of this. It was it was pr- pretty, uh, you know, devastating for her uh, and then even more devastating for me because six months after I went through that, she died and I had to deal with that. So I hadn't even gotten over my own, uh, you know, situation of recovering from the amputation and just dealing with all the emotions that go with that. Mm-hmm. And then having to shift into gear to literally watch her pass away and watch it. And I tell people I can't get that flat line out of my head of just watching her and then comforting. And then, you know what, what she did for me, I ended up turning it around and doing for her because in her time of need and and and, and putting mine on the back burner, that I shifted into gear to, you know, make sure that she was comfortable and letting her know that we would be okay, you know, um, at this point and stage that she had did everything possibly for us and, you know, we were going to be okay with her passing away because she had suffered so much that you could just tell that she was tired at that moment. It, it's almost, Donna, like she knew she had to hold on to get yes. you through that. Yes, you are exactly right. Um, she, what, a, what a strong she, woman. Yeah, and I think that that's where I got that from. Somebody always asks me, what is it the things that uh, that helped you get through what you went through? And I tell them that, Watching my mom and my dad who were sick, you know, throughout some of my childhood and watching and and then, you know, watching my brother die in a car accident at 16 and, you know, the family had to kick into gear and deal with that. And I watched the the strength behind my mom and my dad in dealing with that of a loss of a child that is devastating for any parent. And watching how they handle some of their own illnesses, and they just kept coming. They just kept bouncing back from whatever was thrown at them. 
they just kept bouncing back from it. And Mm -hmm. you know it was devastating in some of the instances of what they went through, but you would have never been able to tell the way they just kept coming back and and overcoming those things. And I I believe that that's where I got that from, Mm -hmm. along with my competitive nature, because I tell people I'm the most competitive person that you'll find I don't like to lose in sports, in life, in general. So my faith, my parents, and and my competitive nature is totally the three things that I can contribute to get me through the cancers and the amputation. So now uh, rowing became very important for you. Yes. How did you get into rowing, of all things? Yeah, you know what? Again, a sports lover. I never turned down anything uh, that's dealing with sports. So when I um, got out of the hospital in 2010, a friend uh, that on my job um, had a person um, that was working at the Naval Hospital, and she was a physical therapist. And she said, and she worked with amputees. And even though I was going to my own physical therapy therapist outside, she said, I think it would be good for you to go see her. So I went with her and I, it was great because she understood how to get amputees back on their feet uh, quickly. And, you know, she would throw challenges at me over and over. And she said that I would just kind of like knock them out the ballpark and she would have to invent new things for me to do because I always wanted to come back showing her that I could do those things. Mm-hmm. So in getting to know her, she said, um, I think that you should get into rowing because the rowing coach and uh, other people from um, various uh, places for, for the amputees up at the Naval Hospital for the military, they were, you know, that's one way they could help get them back on their feet and getting engaged in various sports or activities. And so uh, the rowing coach had been coming up there to work with the soldiers um, and then other people from other sports have been tennis or wheelchair basketball and all those. And so she said, uh, working with me, she said, I think that you should get involved in rowing. And I said, I don't even know how to swim. So that is not a good, that is not a sport that I really want to get into. But I said, well, let me just go try. Let me, let me just go talk to the coach because it was like the erg machines, which is the rowing machines. And I said, let me just go meet with him to see what it's about. So it just happened to be that year that uh, the they had just had some of the people who had came back from the Olympics that had won medals in rowing, and they happened to be up there the day that I went up there. And I was there with the coach talking to him, just trying it out, hadn't committed to doing it. And so that person, I told her, I said, hey, can I hold your uh, medal? And, and so most of the time people just touch it. I said, no, let me put it on to feel what it feels like to win my own on down the line. So I ended up uh, going out to practice with the team, uh, and before I knew it, I was in the sport, rowing for four years, trying to make the Paralympics uh, at regattas, winning, I won a gold medal the first time out, mm-hmm. and the, the fear factor of not being able to swim just went right out of my head, and I said, you just must have been just crazy. That's how much, that's, that's how competitive you are. But the rowing ended up being good for me because I played wheelchair basketball for a while and did tennis. And because I did those sports when I was upright uh, and went to school on scholarships with the basketball and track, um, they became frustrated, frustrating for me because I already knew what I could do in those things. And because I couldn't anymore and was in a wheelchair, 
you know, it was frustrating. But growing, I had no, no I had never done it before. It was mm-hmm. new, so I never had anything to measure it by. It was just a new sport to push and challenge myself in. And it was the medicine that I needed at that uh, moment. I tell people that rowing was just what I needed to get me through what I went through in the amputation and losing that because I was dealing with a lot of challenge athletes and other people who had lost limbs. So it was almost like everybody understood. Mm -hmm. And my coach was so rough. I tell somebody he was harder than my coaches in college. I said, uh, the first time out, he said, I'm going to tell you one time, Donna, and that's it. And it almost seemed like he was calling my name. It could be like 12 teammates, and he would call my name all the time. All I heard him say is, Donna, Donna. But I think that he was pushing me because he saw what uh, I could do. Right. Do. Uh, so he was challenging me, and I thought he was hard. I always wore sunglasses so he couldn't see my eyes. But I think he was just challenging me and pushing me. And I and, and at the end, I loved him as a coach. Mm-hmm. I've seen some videos of you, though, play, running and playing tennis. Do you still do those? Uh... I, I do because mm-hmm. I, uh, it, it's funny because when um, – I was trying to make the Paralympics in the last uh, Olympics. Uh, I was getting into tracks because someone saw me running. They said, I think you should run track. So I was like, you know what? I kind of know that. Uh, so I started practicing and uh, got a coach to work with me in track and field and missed out making the Paralympics trials by 0.33 in the 100. Mm. So I ended up tearing my, between rowing and track and field. My good leg that I had blew out years ago playing basketball, uh, ACL, meniscus, and cartilage damage, I ended up tearing my meniscus on the outside and the inside. So my doctor right now said, I think, Donna, that you should think about retiring from sports, but it is in me, it is part of me, and I still do wheelchair tennis. Uh, I still, you know, go out and roll a little bit. I'm not competing totally in that because I'm mindful of my injuries. And uh, I still run and work out, uh, lift, um, but now I play upright tennis more so than the wheelchair because, you know, I have the, uh, the, the prosthetic feet and everything to be able to do that. So, yeah, sports will never go away. Mm. Donna, tell us a little bit about the organization you set up for breast cancer. Yeah, I, I tell people that whatever you go through is is never for it, nothing. It's for you to reach back to help other people go through. So every challenge that I've ever gone through, I always reach back to figure out what is it that you should be doing in the local community to help other people who may be going through the same thing that you're going through because you have a great understanding of, you know, um, the frustrations and, and, and the struggles so in uh, going through the breast cancer in 1997, um, I ended up getting with a friend, a football player that uh, was playing with the Washington Redskins, Daryl Green. And we were talking about, I said, I know I'm supposed to do something going through the breast cancer. I can't figure out what yet. So he said, do what you know best. Start something dealing with sports. So I ended up... Uh, starting a basketball tournament each year and I ended up getting under uh, another foundation's umbrella for about five years, the Breast Cancer Care Foundation. It was with various doctors that I had gone through, radiation doctor, breast doctor, and all of those that had formed a foundation. And I knew that in five years, I wanted to learn all the ins and outs about starting a foundation because I knew I was going to start my own. 
So I started Hopkins Breast Cancer Incorporation in 2000 um, to help breast cancer survivors in the Washington metropolitan area with anything that they could possibly need financial help with. Because we realized that throughout through the insurances and uh, hospitals and all of that, that a lot of things fall through the gap and the normal things that people need help with after going through breast cancer. I had good health insurance, so I didn't have to pay much going through the cancer, but I knew that a lot of people would need help with rent and food and transportation and child care and anything that you could possibly think of that the insurance company does not do. So I started the foundation to help those people to take to bring some relief to them, the helping hand in the community. And I'm most excited about um, what we're doing in the cancer community 20 years later after starting the foundation because there's a need, a great need out there. And probably a couple of years ago, just reaching back to some of the with some of the people that we had helped in previous years, one Christmas we decided that we would go out in the communities to give gift baskets because so many times people don't get to see the face behind an organization. And I wanted the people to to meet me um, and get to talk to them. Uh, so I went out there knocking on doors of, of some of the survivors that we had helped in the breast cancer community. Mm-hmm. And they were so happy to be able to see you or just talk to you and thank you for being able to help them at a crucial time in their life going through breast cancer. And when I walked away to, from some of those homes, I almost started crying because I said, this is why you started this, to impact and make a difference in patients' lives, to give them hope to get through some of the challenges that they face being a cancer patient. And I'm sure, Donna, that so many people, you know, after you go through the radiation and the chemo, so many people don't think about those survivors and what they're still going through. Yeah, and I knew firsthand, uh, you know, what what you deal with. I mean, you still have to deal with the everyday life expenses and 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 then the treatment and all the other things that's pulling at you at that time when all you're trying to do is get well. So I wanted to bring some relief, uh, mm-hmm. e- even if it was a little bit of relief. And, you know, I've all, also, you know, taken time out to call the call people who are uh, friends will uh, friends will ask me, could I call a friend that's going through breast cancer or other people, you know, that I know will ask me to call uh, people up. And I've uh, even gone to the hospital with some of the patients, Because, um, you know, you understand the process of what questions needs to be asked or just kind of like bring some comfort to them. Absolutely. So, you know, not only, you know, you know, am I giving financial help, but emotional help, too, that I want to really be there for, for the cancer community with helping people, which and even not only that. Having this amputation now, losing part of my leg, now I'm a part of the amputee community and helping them also, you know, get through uh, life's challenges. And and that's why the book is so important that I wrote it. It's to not only win for myself, because so many times we concentrate on winning for ourselves, that we need to take some time out to win for others who can't win for themselves. So tell us a little bit about what went into writing the book. Oh, wow. You know, I tell people that when I look at writing a book and I look back at my life, 
I never would have thought that I would have ever written a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but life challenges sometimes push you into doing some things that you never saw uh, uh, for coming in your life. So what went into the book is that you know, when I was in the hospital, I started jotting down notes and everything when I became able to have my brain all mended back together from the medications and so forth. So I just kind of like started jotting down things for myself. And uh, the title and everything dropped in my spirit. And um, I first wrote the book for myself because healing had to come to me. I always tell people that how are you going to tell someone to get to the other side of victory or heal when you haven't even done it yourself? So it was for me first in jotting down those nights notes and writing. And uh, I even asked my friends to jot down some things because for probably a month or, or a half, I didn't even know if I was uh, among the living because I was so out of it because of medications and being so sick. And so they started writing down things for me also. But at a certain point in the hospital, I knew I was going to write a book because I said, you're writing this book for yourself first or your healing, but it's going to be able to help some other people because you've been through enough things in your life medically that writing this book is going to be a book that gives people hope that they can get to the other side of what they've gone through because so many times we get stuck in what we've gone through and we end up shedding ourselves off from life or, or not moving forward because we can't, because we think that this is the end because of what we've gone through. Okay, you lost a leg, but you're still here. You just mm-hmm. have to end up reinventing yourself somewhat and pushing yourself. And, and I always said that whatever we go through, that if we could tap into the thing that makes us happy, the thing that... Like the rowing. That's the reason why I said sports and all of those things were key for me because I tapped back into the thing that has always propelled me past or through anything that I've ever gone through. So the writing the book was important to be able to really help people to look at life differently and how we waste so much time in in anything that we've gone through or just the the arguing and all those things that we get involved in that we can't really truly live life to the fullest. So um, my, my outlook on life and anything I've gone through is I always try to reassess uh, what I've gone through and better myself uh, or change some things that needed to be changed. And so now I look at life that, gosh, you were cheating yourself somewhat out of, of living life to the fullest because sometimes we put off so many times of things that we want to do. We want to go on that vacation. Oh, no, I don't have enough money to go on that vacation. Or or I don't want to sit on that nice sofa, that nice white sofa that I bought. And it's just existing. You're just looking at that instead of really sitting on it, the, using the, that that's China that you just use when a uh, special company comes. <laughs> yeah, and, and instead of just really using everything, I tell this story that I had a pair of sandals that I hadn't wore before my amputation, and I kept saying, I'm going to wear it when I go to special occasions and whatever, and never got to wear those shoes. And after the amputation, I wasn't able to wear them. Mm. So now it's almost like stop uh, uh, putting off things and not wearing that best dress just to that occasion. Do everything that you want to as though it's going to be your last day. So so, so that's why I kind of like live my life is doing everything I wanted to do uh, in those that day, um, not cheating myself out of, of life, 
um, so that I don't miss out on anything. So I kind of like have a new perspective on just how I live my life. I don't want to be around people who uh, are always uh, talking about almost like a Debbie Downer, uh, that if the sky is blue, you're saying it's gray, or that you're never happy about nothing, or you always complaining about something every day. Every day can't be miserable. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and I told them, if you're going on vacation with me, you can't go on vacation with me unless you want to have a good time. So um, the book is written for to help people get through any challenge that they may want to go through. If it's a kid that, you know, suicide rate is up among kids and adults because they feel like they have no hope of what they've gone through um, or, or just bullying or, or just anything. This book is going to be able to help anybody that's going through anything in life because I think I, that I really truly waited eight years to write, to finish this book because I wanted to really show people what I've gone through and the emotions uh, of, of coming out the hospital in 2010, getting back up on my feet, uh, engaging myself back into life, dealing with the emotional part three years after that, um, and, and, and being transparent of not trying to sugarcoat anything, uh, but I want it to be wide open of what it's taken me to get to the other side of victory because if you don't uh, show them all pieces and you try to cover up like everything was great and whatever, then you're not being true uh, to them. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, uh, and I don't want people to keep putting a band aid over a wound, but to con- but to completely let that wound heal where it's no more there. You may not, you may have gone through these things, and of course you're not going to forget it. But it's not going to be a sore wound that keeps opening back up. Because you totally allowed yourself to heal. Donna, what reactions do you get? I know you do a lot of public speaking, too. What are the kinds of reactions and uh, things that people tell you after hearing you speak or, and reading your book? Uh, I think that it's the, in, in meeting me and hearing me talk about it, it's the joy that they see all of my face still. I went to a track meet at the Pim Relays last year, and I was just talking to somebody about nothing. And then I ended up talking a little bit about the what I went through in losing my leg and that 2010 situation. And they said, you know what? You cannot tell it in your spirit because when you talk about it, there's no sadness there. It's still joy that leaps out when mm-hmm. you're talking about that. You, you can still see the excitement for life still all over you. So that's what I get most of the time when I talk about it, uh, because I don't talk about it like it was a gloomy situation, but I talk about it is that I overcame it and there's still joy in life no matter what I've gone through. And I think that that's what people say that spills out, that talks to me, and that if I've gone through all of that, they know that they surely can. And it's just the joy that's still there. I tell people that happiness and joy is two different things happiness comes and goes you could be happy one minute sad the next uh but the joy if you have the joy for life for just living that that never goes away no matter what you've gone through so that's what people talk about when they they meet me and just that nothing seems to stop you that you just keep bouncing back and that i think they see my zeal for life Donna, i think this book and what you have to say 
is so well-timed. We are all looking for inspiration during these days. I mean, so many people are reaching out to try to find the joy in their lives. And certainly, certainly your book will help them do that. So thank you so much for being with us here today. I, I so appreciate it. And thank you so much. I really appreciate this time that uh, you spend with me and just talking about the book. So I am Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and we've been speaking with Donna J. Hopkins about her book, Getting to the Other Side of Victory, and I encourage all of you to go to Amazon and purchase Donna's book. So thank you very much.